Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hey there, and thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 217, and I'm excited about today's episode because on and off over the years, we've talked a lot about ESOPs. We've had people on the show to explain the mechanical natures of how ESOPs work. One of my favorites was the episode with Dave Deal where we get into the inner workings of ESOPs from a mechanical perspective. We'll put those in the show notes if that's interesting to you. And we've also had entrepreneurs on the show explaining their journey to an ESOP and the one and only Jack Stack, who is one of the fathers of open book management and ESOPs. But today's episode is from a different lens, which I think is extremely important and super, super fun to dive into. What does an ESOP mean from the next generation of leaders, all the employees, the culture and sustainability of the business 13 years after an ESOP takes place? Roy Waterhouse is on the show today. He's the president of Hopkins Printing, which was founded in 1990 and had 50 employees and $6 million in revenue when they did the ESAP and now has 100 employees and does $19 million in revenue. He's been a part of a family business for decades and his father-in-law and mother-in-law owned the business. They went through multiple scenarios trying to figure out what was the best exit for them back 13 years ago. And Roy and his wife are both in the business. They looked at an internal transfer for him and his wife buying the business that his father and mother-in-law then decided to take the company to market using an intermediary to sell to a third party, then pulling it off the market to turn around and do an ESOP. And so Roy's going to be sharing that entire journey of what it was like eventually getting to the point where they did the ESOP. And then he's going to be talking a lot about what it's been like growing a business within the ESOP structure over the last 13 years. Roy's going to share why the ESOP worked for his father-in-law and mother-in-law as it relates to transitioning their management roles out of the business and what they did to build out that next level of leadership. He'll chat with us about how they created their board and then what it was like interacting with a board and a trustee that oversaw that board and the ESOP and why it's not just like flipping a light switch and having a bunch of employees that think like think like owners and what they've been doing over the years to instill that ownership thinking into their culture and how that impacts the customer that calls at 455 and what their people do to go above and beyond satisfying their customers and thinking about the health and the viability of the business. Roy's going to share with us how the strategic direction and the big decision making that needs to happen in the roles of management and key leaders is still just that in the hands of management and key leaders. And he's going to talk about what information they disseminate down to their employees to instill that ownership mindset. But the fact that the people on the shop floor aren't necessarily making decisions about how the bank financing works or what the strategic direction of the company is. So he has a great breakdown of how that whole decision-making process works within an ESOP. Roy's going to talk about who an ESOP might be good for and why striving towards having a healthy, sustainable business could give you the most amount of options and why an ESOP might fit into that. He's also going to share with us who an ESOP is not good for. And if you want certain things, why it might not line up with an ESOP, which I think is just as important as determining why an ESOP would be important. We cover a lot of great ground, and I think it's important to have this next generation's lens of how successful an ESOP was 13 years later. If you want to learn more about valuations, value growth, ESOPs, private equity, and how to align your strategic plan to growing value to create the most amount of options, check out our Intentional Growth Virtual Cohorts. We do it with six to 10 other entrepreneurs. There are four 90-minute calls over four weeks. Everybody gets access to the digital course, and there's about two hours of material in between those calls. It's 1450, and Pat and I both facilitate each of those four calls. It's an absolute blast, and our next one comes up. Our kickoff date is October 13th. Go to arcona.io to register. Otherwise, reach out to me with questions. Thanks again for tuning in. And without further ado, here is Roy Waterhouse. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. 
Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Roy, how are you today? I'm doing great today. Thanks, Ryan. I am excited for more than one reason to have you on the show. Um, one, and I'll kind of set the groundwork and then we can uh, flow into the, the bullets that you and I had exchanged prior, was following you on LinkedIn, which you were actually providing value other than just doing infomercials like everybody else is deciding to do these days. And uh, you had posted a post about celebrating your anniversary as an ESOP. Ding, ding, ding. I obviously like had to reach out um, because from Ohio or where my partner's from. And I was super excited. And one of the cool parts was when you had notified me that you, it was your family that did the ESOP and you were part of the process. So it's, it's a completely different lens on this that I think we have, I know we haven't covered so far. And I think a lot of people have got some good questions that they're probably thinking about what are the other stakeholders when you're doing an ESOP, all the different people to think about. Um, Before we dive into some of the meat of it, let's just kind of Give me the, the cliff, me and the listeners, the cliff note version of you, your background, and how you got to where you are. Well, I grew up in Florida. My wife and I met in college. And after college, we moved here to Columbus, Ohio, and got married. And about three weeks before our wedding, I started working for her family's business. And that was 30 years ago in May. So Were you trying it's, to jeopardize your wedding? I mean, like, what was it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was thankful to have a job. So when I went away to college, I told my dad, I said, if I can't find a job when I graduate, I may move back home. And he said, no, you won't. <laughs> so <laughs> I needed to go forward. <laughs> so that's and you. So you've been working for the business how long now? Just over 30 years. Over 30 years. So. And once you get, what is the business and what's the kind of the, the overall setup of the company? Well, the, the company's name is Hopkins Printing. We're a, a regional commercial printing company. So we're dealing with hospitals, banks, insurance, manufacturing, trade associations, and we do B2B and B2C sales literature. Okay. So if, if you buy a new house and you have a pocket folder with all your closing documents, that's the type of thing we print or the real shiny, glossy pieces that come in the mail. So those are kind of core of what we do. Offset or digital, you're bringing me back to my old space. <laughs> Actually, we're, we started Offset and in 2007, we bought our first digital press, but we're still primarily Offset because yeah. the, the longer run projects are more economical on offset, but we do about 15% of our business is digital. Got it. So um, when you, you and you and I are going back and forth and we can kind of take this in whatever order that you think makes most amount of sense, because it was your, it was the, the family business that then you said you were part of the decision-making. So I'm just kind of curious, like when, when was it started and how to get, how to get to the point where there was this question of what to do with the business? Well, it, my father-in-law started it in 1974 in his basement. So he was, he claims he went through a midlife. He doesn't claim. He says he went through a midlife crisis and started something new in his life. He had always been into photography and the basis of printing is connected very closely to the basis of photography. So in the middle 70s he started that and worked out of his house for a while and then went to a small storefront downtown columbus went to a second one and then moved just south of the city in the early 80s and then we moved to our current facility in 2000 so we're 45 45 or so years old about 100 people okay so cool. just it's a nice size regional manufacturing business. Um, so when you're, it's funny, I, I, I don't know if you read the e-myth where they, they call it the entrepreneurial seizure, where the, the yeah. artist or the technician decides to become a business owner. <laughs> well, he, he started as an art, well, he, he enjoyed photography. He actually worked at a manufacturing business here in Columbus making roller bearings. Oh, And then he's always, he kind of has an artistic edge to him. And that, that is how he started. And he was a true printer 
probably till we got to about 80 employees. And then he became a business person. So he, you know, at that point you start having to develop a management team and HR, HR and sales management. So it's what he does now. He still works three days a week. It's all business. You know, how do we allocate capital, equipment, hiring, growth plans, marketing, things like that. So, and I want to put a pin in that so we can come back to that because I think that's going to be an important discussion point for a lot of entrepreneurs that are figuring out like, what role do I want? What relationship do I want with my business? Because, and even as we set the stage of this, Roy, one of the things that I talk a lot about, and I don't know if we covered it in the Jack Stack podcast, the difference between your management role, what you get paid to do and ownership which is your equity, because those have two completely different paths that can unfold. And then that follows um, or it allows you to be more creative with how and when you do each of those journey, you know, unfold each of those journeys. So I want to make sure we kind of go back to that, but curious on the context or in the timeline is, so, you know, you've been there for 30 years when you started, how big was the business? And then what was your, like, what were the expectations when you started with your father-in-law and then how did those evolve over time? When I started back in 1990, we had roughly 50 employees doing $6 million in sales. Uh, last year, we had just over 100 people doing $19 million in sales. Yep. But I, I would say, thank this. I explain my relationship with Jim, my father-in-law, is in 30 years, we've had two or three real arguments. And by the next day, we've gotten over it. So it's, it's been a good long-term relationship. And he basically, he started me in the, at the bottom and I worked in multiple different departments. We have a creative side of the business and I, that was the first area that I did any management in. And then in the mid nineties, I went into the sales side of it. And now that's my primary responsibility is sales and marketing. But it's, it's been over 20 years that I've been on that side of it. I'm still involved. If we do any equipment purchases, I'm involved, but I'm not the final decision maker. I'm part of a small team that makes those decisions. Super cool. So what, when you, when you started and as you go, so the good, it's, I think you're definitely an anomaly. The fact that you've only had two or three arguments, unless there's a bunch of unsaid arguments. that are there. <laughs> I don't, I don't get that as the, uh, as the, as the takeaway here, but what were, was there clear expectations about roles and then ownership? And as you evolved and the business went from like you, we were talking about from like, a, you know, a passion to, Hey, this is an actual business now. Yeah. What was that evolution like between you two before the ESOP took place? Well, I think one of the things that has been pretty good at Hopkins is even though my wife's family owned the company, the roles that they played in the company, you know, nobody was paid more than our local association's wage and salary surveys say. So there was, you know, there, there were no fancy cars, there were no memberships, there were no vacation homes. So he always ran the business as if he was a hired manager almost. Yeah. Now he ran it fiscally real conservative and he does benefit from the ownership of the company. So obviously you benefit, but it from a kind of a functional day to day, we run pretty clean against our trade association mm-hmm. ratios. Well, what I find they, that I want to put a big exclamation point on that because that's not a lot of, a lot, not a, not a common situation. I think it's getting more common, but the, I, there was a podcast interview I did, Roy, called Solving Problems Through Payroll. So many people, because uh-huh. they don't understand valuations or val- like the value of that asset, they solve mm-hmm. all their problems through, okay, Roy, like, let's have a good Thanksgiving. I'm going to give you an extra raise or right. give you that extra car that we can write off through the business. So all the solving of the problems comes through annual cash flow instead of, hey, this thing is worth something, but that's different than what we're getting paid. And right. I find that the people that end up moving towards ESOPs, especially longer, uh, longer tenured ESOPs like yourself, had that mentality to begin with before they became an ESOP. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think you can flip the switch one day and have an ESOP mentality <laughs> because there's just 
back when back in 2006, 2007, when my wife's family decided to sell the business, our first agreement was with a consolidator out of Texas that owned about 70 printing companies. And what didn't go well with that was all about culture. And there were just some hiccups, some questions, some things that weren't absolutely clear. And it took about a week of due diligence before we decided that doesn't fit who we are. So the an ESOP sale is not as lucrative as a financial sale, but it allows you a lot of other benefits. So, so I, I want to. I, I love that, and I want to peel back, peel that back. But maybe we can kind of go back and kind of go through some of that situation because I agree that you can't flip the switch. And I think you guys, it sounds like you ended up where you should be. But when your when your father in law was looking at this, where were like what were the discussions with you and your family as far as I mean, did your father-in-law say, hey, Roy, can you buy it? I mean, what, what were all the options and what even triggered the process before all those options were explored? So maybe kind of take us through part of that journey that you guys went through. Yeah, well, it was predicated on my father-in-law and mother-in-law wanting to build a succession plan. And they were in their 60s at the time. Now he's 79 and she's 75. But at the time, they were thinking retirement's imminent, you know, 62 to 65. And they were just trying to figure out what are the next steps, because they had at that time a daughter in the business, another daughter associated with the business. And there was a point where my wife and I looked at buying the business. And at the time, the whole digital transformation in the printing industry had everyone anxious. So when we were looking at buying a company that was at a an all-time high, <laughs> it was hard for us to make that, you know, that, that what's going to happen with digital. <laughs> right. So now in hindsight, we're bigger, well, we're not bigger today. We were bigger in 19 than we were in 2019 than we were then. This year there's a little global plan pandemic that's kind of gotten in the way of some business. But it, it was something my wife and I looked at. At the time, we chose not to make that leap because it was, it was, a, it was a, not a small amount of money. Right. So at that point, once we decided that the company would be sold, then we, we got with a local company that valued it put it on the market, sent out the book to about 10 different potential buyers. And we interviewed four different companies. And one of them made the most sense because they were in our industry. They were a consolidator. It, it gave us a lot of resources. But it, in the end, it turned out, you know, after due diligence, we decided it wasn't the right fit for us. And that was on a Friday. On Monday, we ended the deal, and then in about six weeks, we were officially an ESOP. So, holy cow! It was well because we had already built the valuation was done. So much of the paperwork or the process was already complete, and we have a a local gentleman. His name's Tim Yoakum, who at the time was very well known nationally, and his whole life was ESOPs. So when we started meeting with Tim we could just make decisions so much faster because of his experience. Okay. That's, that's, uh, that's interesting because uh, Pat, his, uh, his experience was kind of similar to that where they like took it to market, didn't go up very well, turned around, did an ESAB yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with uh, Harlow HR, uh, Harlow and now it's impact. But um, going back a couple steps, Roy, I'm curious. And when you're, when your father-in-law and mother-in-law were thinking about this next step, like the succession, I was, I'm curious, cause I think a lot of people, there's all this, there's all of a sudden this inherent, I got to do something and I don't know what it is. So this journey starts yeah. a lot of painful education, potentially wrong steps, money, time, all, you know, emotions. Were they trying to solve in their word of succession? Cause I, I think it's a, a lot, a commonly used word, but I think there's so much ambiguity and what, what does that even mean? Or even the word exit? Cause 
were they trying to solve for their role to transition the role or were they trying to monetize their asset to figure out is this in, in the estate planning wealth world? Was there a certain one of those that, or both that they were trying to accomplish? It, it was a little bit of both. I mean, when Jim was in the process of it, he was thinking about retirement. They had some plans, they had some thoughts. And my mother-in-law was our top salesperson at the time. Okay. And she would grind really hard and really long. And I think she was more interested in a retirement lifestyle because yep. she, she had worked her fingers to the bone type of thing. She would take work home every night, do things on the weekends, be in front of customers all day. But in the end, it, it was about how do you take the hundred people who had spent on average 15 years helping you do something and not cause them pain. So the ESOP, I mean, well, you know, the structure of an ESOP, the company is in a sense given to the employees Mm -hmm. out of future earnings, but it's given. So we've had, I mean, we've had truck drivers. We had a truck driver retire about a year ago. And at his retirement party, he made a speech to everybody and said, the ESOP changed my life. It allows me to be able to retire. And that, that I think, was more of a driver in the decision than anything else. I love it. it, it it's in, so a couple of uh, comments on that is like that the, and I'm curious on how you've solved your mother-in-law's challenge because- when I when I experience whether well, there's people that are that are in the uh, audience of the presentations that I give Roy or the the constant dialogue of a lot of owners wait till they they want out and an ESOP does not solve your like your mother in law's quota grinding away right. sales because you're just changing the shares of the entity right so yeah. where they go so if someone wants it like oh ESOP I can walk away now and it's like no 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 it doesn't change anything operationally about the company. No. And I think that's where a lot, by the time someone gets to that burnout stage, it's too late to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. Because they have to do hard work to make a sustainable business that has future cash flow for the employees. I think had had they wanted to have a quick exit, a total exit, we could have never done an ESOP. It doesn't fit the model. It what it fit really well was Jim could stay involved. And over time, he had control over his life. Whereas if it was sold to a financial buyer, you lose that control. So it's, it, it's worked out well in that sense. So I want to go down that path in a second. How did you solve the, your mother-in-law's quota challenge? <laughs> well, what she was our top rep and she had, she opened what were at the time our two largest accounts. So historically, in our industry, a salesperson finds prospects, opens doors, quotes projects, begins projects, does billing, does follow-up. So they're, they're called salespeople, but they're almost like sales slash account management. Yep. So what we did with my mother-in-law is we hired, we've always had CSRs who do a lot of the processing and the the small details, but we hired two account managers that came in to support her. And over about a two year period, one of the account managers ended up with the same level of relationship with the customers. Mm -hmm. And those of those two customers, they're both still top 10 customers, but one of them still our number one customer. So it, it was about hiring a really quality person and then giving her time to build that relationship. So in, I love that. Cause that's one of the topics I want to talk about is like the, where the value in the business was, you know, and how you guys really assess the value and what, how that's changed as you've got uh, ownership mentality going into this. But before we do that, when you, when you look at the options between the consolidator and, Kind of the situation I explained to you about my my family business, what happened, probably very similar uh, yeah. approach that that would have had versus what the route you guys went. When you think about, because like the the ESOP is based on the discounted cash flow, so it's all based on yeah. the the future cash flow of the business. And you've mentioned that it's given to the employees through future value, but the owners get 
they're it's it they, they identify the value and then it's the structure of how much money they get up front versus over time so there's a liquidation of that asset yeah and so and then there's the tax benefits so, and so we can get into some of that but how did you know what was your insights about the value and how that ESOP valued it versus the strategic and then maybe kind of lend some insight of like I don't know what the deal structure is you don't have to give any numbers I'm just kind of curious in the yeah. deal structure that you guys went through well, the the initial valuation, obviously, one of the ways was a multiple of EBITDA. Another was a multiple of free cash flow. Another was an asset-based model because the printing industry, where a, you know, a $19 million company may have 12 to $14 million worth of hard assets that have to be bought every 8 to 12 years. Farmers. So that, that was part of it. And then just, you know, our history, we took a, well, we didn't, the, the accounting firm took a 36-month history and plotted earnings based on that. But it, it business for, uh, it's all about cash flow mm-hmm. because that's what allows you to, to be here tomorrow. And then we had a certain amount of cash in the company as well so it it was some hard assets and some future free cash flow did your did you guys when you guys went and did the valuation and then you guys uh turned into the esop did your mother-in-law and father-in-law take any bank financing and then the seller seller note what was the kind of the structure on that well from an esop perspective it was a hundred percent seller note okay so we my in-laws didn't need the cash today Mm-hmm. And they also realized if in seven or eight years we had a bad year, the banks are a little less forgiving mm-hmm. than two people whose heart and soul is into something. So they they did 100% seller finance and just divided it up over so many years. And that was the annual cost. Well, I think it's really cool about that, Roy. And I mean, first of all, you've got, you're not paying any taxes anymore to be right. able to afford that cat or those seller notes. But um, I think, you know, so when we talk about our intentional growth principles, we've got the first one is like, what do you want as an individual? And the second one are your financial targets. And if you don't need the money up front, awesome op- opportunity and option. But also, you mean, you can take some bank financing. So if you need a yeah. little bit up front or a third or a half, I mean, yeah. but it just shows you to your point about flexibility and control, like what your father-in-law yeah. was kind of driving towards. When you looked at this, so you got, as you're explained to, explain to the listeners, how you guys went about teaching the employees? Like, what did, how did the announcement go? What was the reaction? And how did, how was that? when you say the flip and the light switch, how do you, how do you take the dimmer and continue to move it up? <laughs> well, I guess when, when Jim first announced the company was up for being sold, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. You guys announced that to the, to the company? Well, after we had signed the deal. Okay. And there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of trepidation. And when the deal didn't happen, and within about a week, we announced we're doing an ESOP, it was literally a room full of people that started clapping because they, they felt secure again. And then it was, I mean, we're, we're 13 years in, and I would say, you know, there, there's a, there's a percentage of people that think like owners, but it's it's a hard switch to flip in someone's mind mm-hmm. because, you know, if I've worked here 30 years and I spent 17 years of it just getting a paycheck and then after that seeing, you know, some shares come my way and seeing the value of those shares and then it's still not even real until people start retiring and saying, I just got a check for two hundred thousand dollars so it's that's that's where it is (laughs) and then people people start to believe because they see their friends actually seeing some money out of it so it's we do a annual meeting where we bring in an outside person for education we do we have a financial meeting once a year where we share financials and talk about how the previous year went, talk about bonuses. Then we have an annual meeting from an ESOP standpoint. And then we do a quarterly meeting where we're updating our KPIs. So that's 
gross sales, net gross income, some sales-related functions, and some other key goals that we have. So it's, it's basically a strategic plan update that includes some financial numbers. So that's, you know, it's five, formally five or so times a year. And then just an ongoing, our, our ESOP education committee meets monthly and then goes through questions from people and how do we explain it and publishes notes so that way people can read things. There's, well, as you know, there's a lot of complexity to it. Mm-hmm. it. It can become overwhelming. For someone that is gravitating towards this idea, but you know, one of the reservations might be what you just said. Because I, I can't believe how many people just don't understand this world. However, it's such an amazing option. Now, you know, people hear me get so excited about it. And I think it's probably overdone because of how much people don't know about it. It's not like it's not perfect for everybody, but it's, I almost, you almost need to bang the drum fat harder. So that way you just hear it compared to everything else that's out there. Right. Yeah. So when you, when you hear someone say, like when you hear, you know, all oh, ESOPs are, are they too complicated? What would, what would you say to someone with reservations around that? Um, I, I would say the, the biggest thing is maintaining company control because an ESOP still run through a, a board of directors. So once, if, if an owner looking to transition doesn't want a hard exit from the company, this is a five, six, seven, 10 year process where they can still have a lot of involvement, a lot of input. Now, the, the downside is the annual valuation, the share disbursements, the paying out of the shares. But compared to what it gives you, that's, that's a manageable problem. So, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. And let, maybe put some tangible stuff to when you're, compared to what it gives you where you're not paying taxes anymore. Right. You got more cash flow. Yeah. So hopefully, you'll be able to pay for the valuation and some yeah. of the, these costs, right? And, and you're, technically, your father-in-law and mother-in-law or the, whoever the owner is of the ESOP, they get their payment. Right. So I think that's right. one of the biggest challenges where like people are like, wait a second, I can't do whatever I want with the distributions anymore. And it's like, well, no. hypothetically, you got paid 10 million bucks. So like yeah. that was your payout. <laughs> yeah. And so it's hard to like, you know, it, because you're selling the business, but you're still running it. Yeah. You're, you know, I, that, that is an issue. I'm sure depending on how people historically have dealt with distributions, you know, if, <laughs> If they've been more conservative, that's less of an issue. If they've paid for a lot of board meetings in Northern Italy, it'll be an issue. So I mean, we have friends that are part of organizations that it's, it's part of the culture just to have high-level meetings and the travel, but that was never really our culture. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it wasn't a transition for us, but it, it is a it is a different way of thinking of it. And, you know, the, the biggest advantage is no state and federal taxes until the shares, until the share owner sells the share. So the company, the ESOP can take those, the monies that were spent in taxes and pay down the, the debt. And then over time, use that to fund the share buybacks. So, as far as it relates to this cash flow uh, topic too, so you, you can pay down the seller's note fairly fast because I mean you almost the math hopefully yeah. works out to the point where your savings and tax is paying the the note, right. and then and then future share buybacks, which you're just referring to people that are retiring, quitting, or right. yeah, or whatever. Yeah. What did that do to your business as it relates to competitive advantage and investing in value growth? compared to before? I, I would say the, the biggest competitive advantage is being able to share with a customer stories. You know, we, we had a lady on second shift with some hang tags and the job ticket said, drill a hole in the hang tags. And for years, we've done these hang tags with a drill hole. And she thought, you know, we did these about a month ago and they didn't do the drill portion of it. So instead of just drilling it, which she would have been totally within her rights to do, because that's what the job ticket said, she stopped the job, emailed the plant manager, 
we checked with the salesperson the next morning and found now how these hang tags are done, they're fed into a machine that punches them and puts string in them. So they shouldn't be drilled. So the next morning we boxed up, boxed up the tags and delivered them. And that, that type of thinking happens all the time because now people are over time starting to see if we make good profit, which is from doing a great job for a fair price, I see my share value grow over time. And it, oh, you know, that, that starts to impact how people view things and the, the peer pressure that if, you know, if there's a group of 10 and one of them's not pulling their weight, the other nine start to push on that <laughs> because they see it. It's all. You're affecting you know, my retirement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting, Roy. I've uh, there's someone in our industry that was an ESOP and they sold to a private equity firm. Mm-hmm. And I know people that work there and they said, you know, for decades they were an ESOP and they were like, it's, you can tell in the company kitchen that we're not an ESOP anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's hard to like, you know, for, it's, it's very interesting. It, like when you think about it, if you're an owner and you're in your, in your, the only owner right now, and yes, you could even have a really good culture, but you're still, people are getting paid wages where the equity ownership benefit is for just right. an individual and not, not this. I mean, that's capitalism. It's beautiful. Right. But yeah. this is like a hybrid. It's the, I had a gentleman uh, from Iowa, uh, fully on 135 year old family business ESOP. And he's like, it's the purest form of capitalism because everybody's right. getting equity at the yeah. same time. And it's just amazing. It's hard to like quantify. I think he said, like, if you were to call someone at four fifty five, what would your employees do? Yeah. And like, and you, and it's hard to like, you can kind of extrapolate in your mind how that would impact the business. But now that you've been doing this for 13 years, you know, are you able to see it like from not only the culture, but the finances and like, I mean, I got to imagine it's. From a culture perspective, it's, it's always improving financially. Thankfully we've always done okay. And you know, that's stayed, which is a big deal because that impacts future valuation. But I, I would say your, your statement about it's 455 and the phone rings or someone comes to the door, that's, that's where it really makes the difference. And it's those soft things that cause customers to come back time and time and time again. We, we had a customer come in two days ago and she works for a local university and she was looking at a job on press as they were setting it up. And she and the pressman have known each other for five years because of a working relationship. And she approved the, the project on press. And the pressman had already pulled some press sheets for her to take home with her. And then so she grabbed the press sheets and hit him on the back of the head because she wanted him to do something different. And the pressman came into me, you know, 20 minutes later and said, I want to file a complaint against a customer because she abused me. And they're laughing about it. And then I'm talking to the sales guy and the, the customer said, next time she comes in, she's going to change something on press so that the pressman can't use the sheets he already pulled. And I, I think that's, that's the side of it that people don't see. Because once, you know, the, here's the, our pressman's been with the company over 30 years. His heart's in it. He works hard. He's trying to do the right thing. And now he'll be able to retire with another chunk of asset that will help fund retirement. So it's, it's, it's that, that's the side of it that it's hard to put in a press release. Mm-hmm. Cause it's an ongoing deal that just, it's like the fabric that glues it all together. Yeah. And, and so when you have like going back to the ownership and control, and so, like, you know, the fact that your father-in-law is still involved in being able to work the three days a week, I think it's a, I mean, there are 200 and some episodes of the, and the podcast used to be called Life After Business because a lot of people that own companies, they don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I changed the name. And, it's, and you have this ability to kind of flow into this role that you want, but overall in ownership, you don't have like all of a sudden this socialist like co- company where everybody's voting on everything. Right. Yeah. Can you explain from your situation 
What was the setup from like making decisions, the board, the trust, you kind of just give it a quick setup and how this uh, problem or challenge was tackled? Yeah, generally from an ESOP perspective, we, we share with people, it's just like if I own shares in Coca-Cola, I can't go down to the truck driver and say, change your route. He would just go, well, you have no authority. And it's the same in an ESOP. The, the employees are represented by a trustee and then the board is run or the company's run via a board of directors. So that's really no different in one sense how it operates than pre-ESOP. As I think as Jim transitions out, things will change some because we will bring in a different level of board board member that will have more input. But it's it's still if we buy a piece of equipment, if we make an acquisition, if we look at a new service offering, that's all done by the the board of directors directing an executive team, just like it it was in a sense before. I mean it was my wife's family that were the board members. And her dad was the CEO, so it it was one and the same, really. What um you know because like maybe kind of just a cliff note version of what what the relationship is with the trustee because I think that's maybe a little bit of a hazy concept to some people. The trustee's not coming in and saying, "Roy, you that right. piece of equipment," you know, it, like what is the actual role of the trustee? The the trustee is a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the shareholders, the employees are not taken advantage of. So up until about three years ago, our CFO was our trustee. Okay. So she, she would sit in meetings with a hat on as trustee, as in, is anything happening that's harmful to the shareholder? Now we've transitioned to an external, but we may interact with an external trustee a couple of times a year. You know, they, they look at the valuation, they may get involved in some, you know, small detail, but it's, it, once, once the trustee is comfortable from a fiduciary standpoint that the employees are being treated fairly, that that's the end of their role. They're, they're not talking about other things. And maybe a, a, a another example would be is like, Hey, all of a sudden, Hopkins Printing is getting into plastic straw manufacturing in California and burning through a bunch of cash. And they're going, wait a second. Yeah. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's where a trustee would definitely get involved. And, you know, it's the company that does the, the annual financial review, the company that does the valuation. We come, you know, we sit and meet with them and they talk about where's the business going, how are customers, how are employees, how are key personnel. So they are influencing it, but they're only really getting involved if there's, well, so far there hasn't been anything to, to, to get involved in really. So it's, it's more of an advisor status, unless what you said, we got into a type of business that was totally different, that we had no skill set in and we were burning through the, the capital. So... What what has this done over the last thirteen years as far as hiring and recruiting, retaining employees? Uh, it's that part of it is huge because we're. My wife is director of HR, so she does almost all of the hiring and all of the the higher level recruiting. And she has a storyline now where you can tell somebody honestly you've run a piece of equipment for our competitor across town for 10 years. And once you get paid every Friday, that's where it ends. Now you can come run a piece of equipment for 10 years. And then when you retire, you can get a chunk of money. And it's, you know, I I don't think money is the most important thing, but I think people that, that live week to week that struggle sometimes when you know, the transmission goes out in your car and you don't have $2,000 in the bank. Uh, a help with retirement goes a long ways. And it, it brings just kind of, it settles, it, it calms people. I love how you just worded that, Roy. I, you know, I've gotten um, pretty passionate about this whole, like, I, I mean, some of the people that I'm following that uh, pretty closely, like the Ray Dalys of the world, Jack Stack's yeah. new book is How to Change the Game. 
and and fix the inequality gap. I mean, the reality is, I mean, the the system's kind of hard. I mean, for people that are making 15, 20 bucks an hour, I mean, you're netting two, three grand a right. month. You're not saving for retirement. Like, right. You're not sending your kids to college. And like the fact that you can like, get these, get these people who are humans to like, not think about this and to come into work and just yeah. have fun. Like, I mean, I don't know how, like when you're, when you're thinking about it from an ownership perspective, I mean, that makes a better company, better culture, make more money. I mean, like the ripple effect of that is pretty yeah. huge. Well, I think one of Jim's goals was to do something so that the company could succeed past him. And this, this was the best bet for that. I mean, our, the company that we, all, that we almost did a deal with, they ended up, they were a publicly traded company. They were then bought by a larger publicly traded company in the printing industry. And since then, probably, well, a, a chunk of their plants have been closed down because it didn't make financial sense. Like a carcass of what it eventually... Right. And what, what it's interesting, Roy, is like, well, like it'd be interesting if Jim were to go back and I don't know if he's ever done it, uh, is over the last 13 years, how much he's made off the business net from tax savings. To, I don't know what kind of estate planning was done in the mix of all this, like, and the pay that he's probably still making from three days a week right. compared to if he would have sold to that. Yeah. You might get a, you know, 10 to 25% premium to sell to a strategic that can have that overlap. But I'm, I would argue that most of the time you probably end up making more money over the long haul with an ESOP. Why well, the, the tax advantages to the seller are significant. And when you sell finance it, you get the, the value of the shares plus an uh, interest rate. And if you stay involved in the company, like you said, healthcare is covered, you know, all these small things are covered and you still get paid and you have a purpose for getting up in the morning. So right. it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Cause I have, I've had people who are like, yeah, well, I'm going to make 10 million bucks and blah, blah, blah. It's more than I've in ESOP. I'm like, yeah, but if you could actually go in and still be the CEO, pay yourself 200 grand for being the CEO, right. 200 grand times seven years and you control right. it and you get the healthcare benefit. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a real, it's, that's real cash flow, right? You're going to have to go figure out, I mean, how many Vistage shares or EO shares or people that are like, just, they're just trying to bring in their annual income. Yeah. Because they sold the business. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, I, I guess if, if you could sell a business for $10 million and you could make 7% on your money, but leave, you still have to leave part of that in there to grow it for inflation. Mm-hmm. So you'll, you'll be clearing two or 300 grand a year, which is a lot of money. But if you sell a business for $10 million, you were probably making that kind of money. Mm-hmm. So it's, you can burn through that money, not quickly, but you can burn through it. <laughs> I've watched people do it quickly, yeah. <laughs> depending on your lifestyle, right? <laughs> yeah. That's so, you know, one thing, and I don't know what degree of open book management or ownership thinking, because I know every, you know, there's, there's some of the kind of the business that you're in. And then there's professional services where there's right. like, you know, there's engineers or architects kind of a different makeup than some of the the staff that you might have, has this impacted your ability to withstand some of these recessions and hiccups in the economy over the years? I mean, what has that done for you guys compared to maybe some of your competitors? Well, I think, you know, during COVID, we, through the first quarter of the year, our sales were up. And then through the second quarter, they were down. And we started a program called 20% Shared pain. And we had a hundred people volunteer to take a day a week off and not get paid for it. Now, anybody can do that for a little while. That's not a long-term solution. And then with the PPP money, we brought everybody back. And now we're part of a program with the state called Shared Work. So in the last five months, we've not laid anybody off. And if, if we can get back the vast majority of our business by next year, we won't have to lay anybody off. And there was a 32% drop in GDP second quarter. So that's, you know, where our managers have gone zero over time. How do we get around this and still meet the customer's needs? Um, people have been willing to take time off without pay. People have been willing 
to just do extra. And it, it, that's all part of that ESOP culture because they see a long-term benefit. So that's, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. Cause I think, you know, I, you can get a great culture together even if you're not ESOP owned, but then it's like, yeah. there's still this underlying sub, whether it's subconscious or it's, you know, a truly part of the culture of like, yeah, we're doing this and we'll do this. Cause I like my colleagues and I like the company, but the owner is still making a bunch of money. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's hard to avoid that no matter how good your culture is. Yeah. I, I don't think you can avoid that. Because the, the thought is always, no matter what's happening with me, the owner's still drinking champagne every night. Well, and right. And there is such a disconnect because, you know, I've seen, I, I see both sides super clear and they're both real because perspective, you know, perception is reality where owners got all the personal guarantees. You're the one on the yeah. hook for the risk. You're the one that's losing cash. I mean, so super real, super legit. And the, and a lot of them, a lot of employees, and depending on your workforce, don't understand that you're 19 million. They they think you have 19 million in cash, right? <laughs> you know and they mean? think that's what you make a year, exactly. not what you sell a year. <laughs> yeah, by the way, we lost money last year. Didn't I? Yeah. Know, yeah, it's a totally different perspective. But I think it's just interesting when you truly you have it in there together, and it's a uh, it's yeah, it's an interesting interesting approach when you think about like. It, the succession planning of your, of your family. And like, you've got different, you know, going back to like, well, truly what a succession planning meaning has an ESOP into that, you know, as you have, how did, how did the ESOP have a role in the different stakeholders? Cause there's a lot of people Roy, that I know that have partners, right. family members were like, your, 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 your mother and father-in-law literally wanted different things. One wanted a retirement lifestyle, one wanted the business work in the business for a long time. Like, so you have this ability to like, kind of connect a lot of dots. I mean, any suggestions for people that have multiple stakeholders and how this uh, this option could play a role in that? I, I think if your if your stakeholders want their cash and need to go somewhere quickly, it's not a good option. But most people, I believe most, that spend 30, 40 years building something want to see it long term succeed. And that's that's where the stakeholder, you know really care. I mean, there, there were the family that owned it. One ended up not working in the business. One still does. Another one's fully retired and another one does part-time. So that's, they've all been able to kind of get what they need out of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's just a longer term perspective. Now it's also a longer term responsibility because the company still has to be run. The work still has to be done. Decisions still have to be made. So it's not, it's not a gimme. It's still a business. Decisions have to be made, right? Like, yeah. It's really, like I said, like if you're burnt out and you want to like go somewhere immediately and you want your role gone. Yeah. Not a, it's not the right option, but right. I, I don't, I think that's the minority of owners because you know, you, you're not going to build something of value unless your heart's in it. And I, I just, I, I have a hard time thinking of very many people that would cut and run and allow a company to suffer. Yeah. It's, it, it, there's, I've seen some out there, um, yeah. it's, but it's interesting. I had a guy on my podcast, Carl Allen, a few um, weeks or months ago, and he said that 95% of the companies that sell or in the lower, lower and middle market are, first generation founder led. Yeah. I mean, he even said that of the data that he had had found that the business culture and employees was 75% of their decision over the money. Even the people that are on the lower market who need the money. Yeah. I, I fully believe that stats true. Cause I, I just, you know, I, I know a lot of business owners just from customers and friends and true. The money does matter. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see a business owner saying, okay, I'll take 30 cents on the dollar because I really care. Right. But if they take 90 cents on the dollar because they can still take care of the people that helped them, it's, I, I think most of them are willing to make that deal. And what do you think is the biggest challenge from other friends or entrepreneurs that you know from understanding this or going down this route or like what, what are the biggest challenges? 
I, I think it's the the false perception that an ESOP then has a hundred bosses instead of a hundred employees. It's that thinking that everything, everybody gets a vote on everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think once somebody grasps that how the business is operated doesn't change, it it it's it's a different perspective because if you know, if I think of it's employee owned implies that each employee is an owner and they can go in and do what they want, but it's actually each employee is a shareholder and the shareholders are represented by the trustee mm-hmm. and the trustee goes by the direction of the board. So it, well, and then even a layer on not on that is the, the shares, the, the shareholders are based on a percentage of payroll. So usually the right. owners and the executive team are the biggest chunks of payroll anyway. Right. Yeah, we did. We did it initially based on payroll, but also part of the equation was based on how long someone had been there. So we we had some some people that did not make a lot of money, but they had been there thirty years, still do pretty well with it. Oh, so they vested faster or yeah. higher. Percentage. Well, they vested faster and they got a larger share allocation based on tenure. And well, and I think you just put a huge bow on the fact that you can be creative based right. on well, yeah. no one told you to do that or Jim to do that, right? It was something that was chosen to do. Right. Yeah. It I I think if somebody wants to go down the ESOP path, they need to get some really good advisors because your typical support staff, your accountant and your attorneys don't have the background of an ESOP. And I'm sure there are people who have gone down the route with bad advice and regret it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then, unfortunately, that's where you Google it. And, like, it's so interesting, like, as I've gotten educated on this over the years, it's like I've come to the conclusion that because the operation of the business doesn't change at all, it's just ownership. And because yeah. you can be so flexible with it, all the bad things that have happened have been self-inflicted based right. on the advisors or the yeah. owner and how they set it up. It's like you just... You like you set it all up, so whatever happened happened as a result of, right? <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of non-ESOP examples of <laughs> things that aren't set up right and go poorly, and there are ESOP examples of it. So, exactly right. Yeah. Um, as we're wrapping up here, what is uh, you know, maybe one takeaway if you're if you're if you got listeners that are tuning in that there's a lot of people that have been interested as I've been covering some of this topic over the years. One thing that you would leave them with that would, you know, help them, you know, make progress on on learning more about this, or one thing that uh, maybe is a, I don't know, maybe I'm trying. I'm searching too hard. Maybe, yeah. maybe what well, would be your takeaway? <laughs> I think if probably one of the best sources is the National Association, because they'll they'll be able to point you to local experts that you can actually sit down and talk to. And I think if if somebody has a desire to have a legacy that's positive and take care of the employees that help them get where they are, an ESOP is a, a fabulous outcome. So I giving it away, you still get paid for it too. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're still selling it. It's just a different structure. Yeah. Um, okay, two questions then. One is what does the word intentional mean to you? Intentional to me is Am I living my life on purpose? Do I get up and do what I'm going to do every day with a goal in mind? So I know when I come to work, what my, from a sales perspective and marketing, we have four goals this year and I know I can list them. I know intentionally when I wake up with my wife every day, what's my job at home to be a better husband and a better partner and intentionally how our kids are treated and what opportunities they have. So I, I like intentionality. I love it. Second question, what's the best place to find more about you, about the business? Uh, what, what contact information you want to leave with the audience? Probably for the company, it's just hopkinsprinting.com, all one word. And then from the website, you can find our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn feeds. And then my email is just rwaterhouse at hopkinsprinting.com. And I'm a pretty easy LinkedIn find. Just look at Roy Waterhouse. There aren't 
Waterhouse is not a common name, so it's pretty easy. And I'm, I'm on LinkedIn every day doing something. Yeah, and you put some good content out there, which is Thank why you. we're here. Yep. Roy, it's been a blast having you on the show. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Ryan, for the opportunity. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Roy. The next generation lens of an ESOP, I think is a great way for you as an entrepreneur to think about what would this mean to my business, to my company, to my culture, to my customers 13 years later? How can you impact the next generation's leaders' lives, your family's lives, while also reaping the financial rewards? This is truly a way to liquidate your ownership continue to transition a role slightly and gradually into whatever it is that you want it to be. But the key is you have to create a sustainable business. If you do not have a sustainable business, this does not become a great option. So creating a sustainable, healthy business will give you the most amount of choices. Go check out one of our intentional growth virtual cohorts or check out the intentional growth course to show you how to tap into the knowledge so that way you can intentionally grow value to create the most amount of choices and at least have a lens and a focus on where you're trying to march towards. Our Intentional Growth Virtual Cohort kicks off on October 13th. You can check it all out on arcona.io. If you got questions, feel free to reach out to me. Thanks again for tuning in and I will see you next week.